Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm your moderator, Sheila Woodruff, and with me today are regular panelists, Nora Bonner and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hi. Hello. Thanks for being on the show today with me. Um, I'm excited to talk with you guys about Susanna Wesley, but first let's introduce ourselves before we get started. Victoria, would you start? Absolutely. Uh, Hello, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I am currently an adjunct professor of English and Sociology at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, So that's how I spend most of my time. And uh, when I'm not teaching and writing and thinking, uh, currently I am obsessed with the novels of John Green. So uh, that is a warning that maybe listeners, you will be uh, subjected to an episode about that soon. Thanks, Victoria. Nora? Uh, hi, I'm Nora Bonner. I live in Tallahassee, Florida, where I finished an MFA in creative writing uh, fiction, and I'm working on a novel and supporting myself um, by teaching at the community college. I teach composition there, and I'm planning a wedding, and that is my life right now. <laughs> I'm from Detroit. You should know that, too. I'm from Detroit. <laughs> a little bit different than being from Tallahassee. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm Sheila Woodruff, like I said, and I live in Louisville, Kentucky now, Louisville. Um, I have two small children and married to a wonderful bridge engineer who dragged us all up here um, to this wonderful town. And I work in education in various capacities. Right now, I work with Educators Toolkit, which is a professional development organization working largely with after-school professionals, getting them to understand project-based learning and hands-on experiential learning in general for their after-school kids. So it's a lot of fun. Um, To get us started today, we have a listener email, yay, that we'd like to read and respond to. So Victoria, why don't you take that away? Sure. Thanks, Sheila. Um, This email is from listener Kate. I'm sorry if I mispronounce your surname, Kate. I think it's Hanch. Uh, Anyway, this is from Kate. Thanks for a great podcast. I discovered you recently and have been catching up on episodes while I've been doing housework. I think a lot of us listen to podcasts that way. I appreciate your breadth of subjects, which encourage me to expand my notion of what Christian feminism means. I've also started watching 30 Rock because of you, and I'm tempted to binge watch. Do it. Binge watch. Yay. I'm glad that I can recommend you to students and friends who might be afraid of feminism. And then she has um, a list of suggested show topics. Um, So I'm going to mention them and maybe we can talk about them a little bit as a group. Uh, Any historical figures that can be considered proto-feminist, mystics, authors, etc., Uh, Brene Brown and vulnerability, which she mentions um, she's heard a lot about um, and, and heard about a little bit on this show. Uh, She also mentions the Hunger Games series, um, feminism in music, and gives some examples there. Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, etc. And also Bible translations, uh, centenary in particular, and the notion of inclusive language, which again she mentions we've touched on a bit, um, but haven't engaged with a whole lot. Um, She also mentions a post that I wrote recently uh, on our Facebook page about inclusive language. Uh, after we recorded our women's Bible study episode, um, I said I was teasing out some ideas about um, representation, linguistic representation, um, women represented in uh, inclusivity or language and sacred texts versus like physical representation, female pastors uh, and things like that. So she said she'd um, like to explore that uh, as well. So those are Kate's ideas. Thank you so much, Kate, for writing in. I'm sure you'll see at least one of those ideas show up in some form next year. But uh, Nora and Sheila, what do you think about some of the ideas that Kate mentions? Um, well, 
when you when Kate mentioned the historical figures, uh, Julian of Norwich came to mind. I read her. Um, what is it called? Something about divine love, revelations of divine love, maybe five years ago. So it would be kind of neat to go back to that. Um, and I know she talks about the motherhood of Jesus in there. So that just sounds like it would be really fun to talk about. Um, She's really wonderful. I've taught her before and students always really dig her. Um, yeah. I don't know if any, oh, what's the other one? Uh, Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila is cool. And also maybe also maybe Marjorie Kemp if we're doing the mystic thing, since um oh, yeah. Julian of Norwich was Marjorie Kemp's sort of mentor. Ah, that sounds good. Um so that's what came to mind for me. And um I would really love to talk about Lady Gaga. Um I actually put her on when I need like a feminist boost <laughs> lately. So it would be kind of interesting to think about her in, in a Christian context, I guess. Um, so those are the ones that jumped out at me. Um, I don't know. How about you, Sheila? I was definitely on board with the, um, the historical figures too. And I'm, I don't know very much about the mystics. So I'm kind of operating as a listener myself right now thinking, yeah, I want to hear an episode about mystics. And I think today hopefully it will serve a little bit in the historical realm. Um, but I'm, I'm hung up on this concept of spiritual midwives and want to learn more about these women that we don't know very much about. So I'm on, on board with that. Um, and I think these topics are all good. Oh, the other one was uh, the linguistic interpretation or yeah, linguistic interpretations and, um, inclusivity. Again, I don't have a whole lot to say yet about that. I have my own thoughts, but I think that would make for a really interesting episode to talk at greater length about. So I'm on board that train. All right, so maybe we will see some of Kate's ideas in the future. Um, Sheila, tell us a little bit more about what today's topic is and how we're going to dive into it. Sure. So today we're talking about Susanna Wesley um, and her writing. We read a little bit from um, a book entitled Susanna Wesley, The Complete Writings, by Charles Wallace Jr. It's edited, obviously, by Charles Wallace Jr. He didn't write her writing. Um, and we, I kind of got here. We had a request to talk a little bit more about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, and I thought that I could talk about that some more. And um, the more I read about it, the more it Susanna Wesley's name kept popping up and this episode just kind of evolved in her direction. Um, not because the Wesleyan quadrilateral isn't interesting, but because, um, I thought she was more so for right now. So we might put that other one on the back burner for a while, um, but today we're going to talk about her. She's perhaps most famous for being the mother of Methodism. You see that a lot, um, around the webs and such. Or at the very least, she um, is known for being the mother of John and Charles Wesley, who started what became known as the Methodist movement, um, and eventually the Methodist denomination, the United Methodist denomination. There are lots of different Wesleyan movements at this point. Um, they started that while they were at Christ Church College at Oxford. They were part of a holy club that evolved down the road to the Methodist bit. Um, however, to begin to understand her past, or to understand Susanna Wesley past this surface level bit of trivia, um, we're going to explore her actual past. And due to the sheer number of Wesleys to be referenced in today's episode, for my own sake, I'm probably going to refer to her disrespectfully. I know um, familiarly as just Susanna, if that's okay with y'all. So <laughs> I think we'll go from there. Um, Victoria, will you get us started? What can you tell us about Susanna Wesley's early life? What was her relationship with her father like, and how did that impact her education and early faith formation? This was actually a really interesting thing for me to research um, because of my own um, my own training in uh, British drama and history. Um, I did not realize how involved Susanna's father, um, Dr. Samuel Ansley, how involved he was in the events of um, the British Civil War. Um, he was actually a pretty big political rabble rouser. He um, is a a la kind of loudmouthed, ardent um, royalist. He objects to the beheading of Charles I, um, which puts him on on the bad side of a lot of people in power um, historically, especially notably Oliver Cromwell, um, who 
after um, Charles I is beheaded and the, the notion of the divine right of kings um, in England is, is never the same, Oliver Cromwell becomes Lord Protector of England. Um, it takes the people of England a while to figure out essentially that a king is still a king if you call him Lord Protector. Um, that that Cromwell is is not really doing a lot um, different politically. So Susanna's father, Samuel Ansley, is involved um, really strongly in, in these debates and events. Um, and she inherits his political... Um, vocality. She becomes um, uh, kind of a, a loudmouth in her own right. Um, one way that we know this is uh, because of her religious conversion. So her father, um, her father opposes the ascendancy of the Church of England, which is in certain ways really connected to um, these ideas about Cromwell and the English Civil War. Uh, the Church of England, of course, is around before this. It's established by Henry VIII um, so that he can get around um, Catholic regulations um, on divorce. So it's it's not brand new uh, when Ansley and, and Cromwell are uh, are on the political stage. But um, the Church of England kind of becomes a really strong political force, um, closes the theaters and, and does some other um, some other public and political things around this time. So um, when Susanna tells her father that she wants to convert to the Church of England, she wants to become an Anglican, this is her um, basically kind of the the editor um wallace says becoming a part of the uh the mechanism of her father's political oppression this is like a big break um but he gives her his blessing and the way the editor framed it is he gives her his blessing because um her argument for her conversion is so well researched because she's done her homework really well which to me tells us a lot about them as a family um that they they value intelligence and they value structured arguments um and i i I really kind of that brought a smile to my face the idea of her saying i'm making this really big decision that you don't agree with and him saying well yeah i don't agree with you but that's okay because your argument is really solid i i liked that a lot i actually thought of you victoria when i read that part because i know that your own like personal faith journey from um southern baptist into presbyterian of some sort was i'm sure similar you know have these very like structured rational ideas about what faith is for you personally and i i i put your faith on susanna wesley at that moment I, I kind of did, too. I Part of, of my smiling at that anecdote was because it really made me think about um, the theological conversations and the faith conversations I had with my own father, um, who, who is, uh, is a retired attorney and, and who, because of that, um, has his own high respect for a well-structured argument. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I can sort of relate to that a little bit and, and found it really enjoyable. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I thank you too for doing the extra research. Um, I appreciate the historical perspective because that's not usually where my brain goes, and um, it helps I think understand where she comes from and these big choices that she makes. I had a question for both of you or either of you. So when she made the choice to join the Church of England, the way Wallace tells it, it sounded a little bit like there might have been some influence by a young man, possibly Wesley. Did either of you pick up on that, or was I reading something wrong there? Wallace does seem to suggest that, and he seems to suggest it in a in what to me read as a, a very kind of tongue in cheek, very flip way. Um, I, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it, it was very tonally like some people would say that she might be influenced by a boy. It was very like winky and strange. Okay, I thought I thought I read that too, and then I thought maybe I'm just a little slap happy from life experiences right now, but I. Uh... I like the fact that she's, I mean, even, even if that were so, that really this was about her intellectual capacity and what other people might wink, wink, nudge, nudge about is um, not as important as, you know, her actual thoughts on the matter. So I just had to pull that out there. Um, so she made the choice to join the Church of England. Um, she joins the church, marries Samuel Wesley, who's an ordained 
um, clergy of the church, and they they have 19 children, 10 of whom um, survive infancy. And Nora, I know you're going to talk more about their relationship a little bit later, but would you tell us just a little bit about Susanna's life as a pastor's wife and her experiences with rectory life? Um, I can try. Uh, so um, her husband apparently was um, away a lot and not very responsible. Um, and so she ended up, she was home alone a lot and had a lot of responsibility to raise the children without a lot of help. And I'm going to talk about this. Did you want me to talk about her prayer meetings now or did you want me to hold on that? Um yeah, let's wait on the prayer meetings just for a couple, for a little bit, yeah. Um, yeah, no and maybe just talk about the experiences. I know um, she, the other issue they had a lot, they had to deal with was Samuel's debts. He always had a lot of debt and was thrown in debtor's prison a few times, so that's part of him being gone. Um, and he seemed to, like, just make people mad at him all the time. And I don't have any particular passages to talk about there, but one of the things that happened was this fire at Epworth, which I know you mm -hmm. wanted to mention. Yeah, um, there's a couple of, like, big life-changing events <laughs> that happened to this family, and one of them was a fire. Actually, I didn't mark down. Do you know how it started? I didn't see how the fire started. There, there isn't any, I mean, this is a long time ago, right? There isn't any hard yeah. evidence to show, but the general theory is that a few of his parishioners were really upset with him. And so they set fire to his house. Whoa. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's pretty serious. Um, so she yeah. almost lost John, right? And so yeah. then that would have been like no Methodists. Um, so that was a big deal. And uh, they lost everything they had. And this happened in 1709. Um, but um, apparently it kind of really uh, changed her perspective of, um, I think, I don't know where that, I think that Wallace wrote that she decided to be an instrument of good in her children's lives because of that. So she kind of, it kind of gave her agency to, be a bigger influence. It was like a wake up call for her was the way that he wrote about it. Um, so that was a big event for them. Um, and then the other kind of fun <laughs> thing that was mentioned as a life changing event was that they had a poltergeist in their rectory. Um, and this hap this apparently, um, occurred between 1716 and 1717. Um, and they had a name for this ghost <laughs> or whatever. Um, I guess a poltergeist is a ghost, right? It's just, well, they had a name for him, Old Jeffrey, and they kind of had like a personality for him. Um, they said that he interrupted every time they were praying for the king that he would pound on the door. Um, so they figured he was a Jacobite, which is kind of funny. So like they attributed, um, political leanings to this. Um, but the, the bottom line of this, what happened, um, with this poltergeist was that it helped the family to focus more on supernaturalism. And so some of the writings later seem to be kind of like a little bit of a, um, kind of like, an emphasis on the supernatural over, um, science or like, you know, um, materialism. There's kind of an anti-material, uh, I, I picked up a little bit with her theological writings. Um, and it could be because they were really attuned to this, uh, this ghost experience or just feeling like there were spirits around them. Um, so. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's one of my favorites little stories <laughs> growing up Methodist. You always get to talk about old Jeffrey and that's my dad's name, which is particularly funny. Um, and I, I really like, I hope we, I think we're going to have to come back to this at some point in the future, but the, the concept of her writing about angels and things is not one that we talked a little bit about, about this before we started recording, but it's not something that I was really familiar with that I knew that she had done. And there are quite a few references just looking, um, in the index in the back of the book to it. So I'm curious to go back now and read some more. Thank you for bringing those points up. Really interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit more in depth about her writing itself. In the introduction to this text, Wallace mentions that there are holes in scholarship that Susanna Wesley's presence might fill, thanks to the letters and devotional journaling that he's collected here. 
this assertion seems to be borne out in an interesting edition of um, the Quarterly Review, which is a journal of theological resources for ministry. Um, this particular edition was actually written in 2003, so it's a little bit old, but it's called Toward a Feminist Wesleyan Theology. Thought it was appropriate for this episode. None of the articles in that edition refers to Susanna at length. Um, and one article in particular called Historical Foundations of a Feminist Wesleyan Theology, um, that, that article maybe should have. Instead, it dealt with women involved in Methodist ministry in the late 18th century in Britain, um, in the African-American tradition, and then in, the North Amer- in North American Methodism from 1760 to 1939. Um, so today's exercise, our podcast here, is somewhat interesting, I think, in that it and people still gloss over this woman um, in favor of her famous children, you know, who, quote, started the movement. Um, so I'm hoping that maybe we can fill some holes here and, and pique your interest, listeners. So we'll start, Victoria, with you. One of the passages that interested me in the introduction is when Wallace referenced Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own and suggested that Susanna's daily devotional time was perhaps an early rendition of that sort of space making. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about A Room of One's Own and how it connects to what you've read of Susanna's writing so far? Um, Ultimately, what do you think is the writing she did, especially her devotional journaling, a proto-feminist attempt to create her own space. Sure, I can talk a little bit more about that. Um, I have mentioned Virginia Woolf's really important foundational um, feminist essay, A Room of One's Own, before. Um, It comes out in, I don't have the date in front of me, but I think it's 1929? Uh, I've mentioned the date in previous episodes, I know. Um... And the, the kind of central thesis um, that, that comes from the work's title is that Wolf says um, women need two things to be able to be writers productively. They need a space that is their own, and they also need um, money that belongs exclusively to them. Um, so these two things together can kind of cement um, female independence enough to have um, – a body of literary work, of um, philosophical work that is distinctly female, um, be socially enabled and produced. So that's that's kind of Wolf's um, central idea, and I do think that you can see um, some of Wolf in Susanna Wesley's journals. I think there's um, some some divergence there as well that I'll talk about, but. The first place that I think you can see the presence of Wolf's kind of space-making thesis is that um, Susanna several times mentions um, that writing is hard because she has all these children and she's dealing with everyday life and she actually has to make herself write and make herself set aside time to write. So you can see her in her journals engaging with um, these very practical demands of, of gendered labor and of motherhood. Um, she has to um, find a space and, and find time to, to put her thoughts to paper, um, and, and that's something that I think Wolf um, resonates with. Um, also, I, I wanted to mention the title of this chapter. Um, I'm, I'm dealing mostly with chapter 17, um, which is titled, You Will Write What is Familiar to You by Practice. Um, there's about 30 journal entries in this chapter. Uh, they're all written in the first or second person, um, which is, is something that Wolf does as well. Um, and, and those word choices really put you inside the text. They really feel as if we're getting a sense of what Susanna actually thinks, what she thinks about writing and knowledge formation, what she thinks of herself as well, and, and her own spiritual journey and her responsibility um, in that journey to her children. Um, she spends a lot of time in these journal entries second-guessing herself um, saying that she's not good enough. Um, this is something that, that anyone who's familiar, not just with A Room of One's Own, but with any of Wolf's work, um, will recognize the idea that the sort of patriarchal um, establishment, whether it be religious or academic or literary, um, if we're talking about Wolf or 
Susanna, um, sort of is structured in a way that makes women think that they're not doing writing right, that they're not doing thinking right, that they're not doing mothering right, all of these things. Uh, so that's that's there as well. Um, when Wallace talks about the title of the chapter, when Wallace refers to the phrase, you write what is familiar to you by practice, Wallace frames um, the practicing that Susanna is doing as related to her faith, um, that she's, she's using this um, journaling to work through uh, her own theology and, and how she can put um, thought into practice. That's certainly true. Um, but I, I also think there's another layer in that title. Um, she is writing what is familiar to her by practice because she's practicing writing so much. Um, something that really jumped out at me when I was reading, um, this section is, uh, not only do we have 30 entries, um, in the chapter, but each, of those 30 entries has either three or four parts. She is writing regularly um, three or four times a day, usually um, morning, noon, and evening, and sometimes another time. So this is someone who's really putting in the effort to, to practice writing just by doing it at regular intervals. Um, you can tell this, too, in the content of some of the entries um, I'm going to quote just a bit from, uh, from entry 45 now. Knowledge that goes no further than speculation is like an excellent instrument in the hand of an unskillful person that knows not how to make use of it. So she's saying here that, um, that thinking isn't enough, that knowing just for the sake of knowledge isn't enough. Um, she says later in the entry that that, in fact, can lead to the sin of pride, um, that the real goal of knowledge should lead to wisdom, and that wisdom should acknowledge um, its source, which is which is God. Um, and and this is, is the place where I think Susanna sort of deviates from Wolf a little bit in that they're... Um, their sort of epistemological goals are different. Um, Wolf sees a, a kind of gendered liberation in the idea of knowing just to know because women, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, women basically haven't been allowed to know just to know um, historically, that women have been um, barred from academia or barred from all, uh, barred access to all facets of academia so that they can focus more on practical knowledge. So she thinks that there's a kind of freedom in knowing things just for the sake of knowing things. Whereas um, for Susanna, the goal is different. It's about um, collecting knowledge of the world and knowledge of theology so that she can funnel that knowledge and truth um, into her children and so that she can push them forward, uh, though, to, to bring it back around to Wolf one last time, um, at the end of my discussion here, something that's important to mention is that Susanna, in teaching her children, is very egalitarian um, pedagogically. She treats her sons and daughters equally. She um, teaches not only her sons, but also her daughters Greek and Latin, which is something that's pretty... Um, pretty rare in the period that she's working in. She also, um, I was reading, uh, in not the chapter I'm focusing on, but in other places in the book, um, a list of parenting rules that she had. And one rule that I thought was just fantastic is that she, um, forbade her daughters from doing physical household labor until they knew how to read well, which... Yes, I love that. I love that one. Yeah, it's great, right? It's fantastic. And it's so, um, so counter to the way gendered child rearing was done in this period. Um, boys and girls were raised in the house together, um during this period, but, um, the, the sort of general social idea was that, um, because girls weren't, um, going to go to school or go into a trade in most cases, unless, unless they're super high class, um, in most cases they're limited to kind of practical household work, um, child rearing and childbirth and cooking and, and these kinds of things. Um, so she's, she's really kind of, uh, 
pushing against social norms here in a way that I found really interesting and in a way that I think Virginia Woolf would, uh, would approve of in a big way. I, I hear a lot of like Lizzie Bennett here for some reason, you know, I feel like young Susanna Wesley and Lizzie Bennett would have gone along really well. Somebody should write that fan fiction. Get on it. Get on it, <laughs> listeners. Do that. Do Make it. that happen. Please. Please. Thank you for sharing all that. I love, um, there are a couple of things that I liked. I just want to touch on the practical knowledge part that you picked up. I thought was interesting. Um, there are a few times in the book, both in the, uh, like prefer, prefer toward what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, the writing, the introduction to each of the sections of the book where Wallace uses the term practical theology. Um, and that's, Wesley, Susanna actually uses it herself, um, the idea of practical theology versus critical theology or critical reasoning. I mean, she would approve of critical thinking, but she's making this difference theologically. Um, I think it was in the um, the section called Advice to an Oxford Man, who is John, um, where when he decides to take orders, she approves and says, and you must be studying this practical theology quickly, you know, that your dad would say, do the critical stuff, but I'm telling you, this is what's more important. And I, I appreciate that. Um, like you said, she was using her knowledge to, um, to further her own faith formation as well as that of her children, which is definitely at the forefront, um, of what she's writing and what we'll talk about some more in a little bit. Thank you for bringing those up. Um, I think that's a really good segue, actually, to, to my section. I read on Educating My Family is the name of the essay, um, and which you referred to, Victoria, just at the end there, the, the part about um, young women being educated before they're allowed to do other work. So the, the piece of writing that she seems to be most famous for in the research that I did prepping for today's episode, um, apart from, you know, giving birth to the quote founders of Methodism, um, is her educational methodology for teaching her children, um, her rules for raising kids. Um, Wallace, again, in, in his introduction, um, says that many observers, I'm quoting here, many observers have additionally supposed that Susanna's schoolroom and rectory life in general put the initial discipline, the method, in Wesley's Methodism and ensured that a continuing ideal of the movement would be joining knowledge with vital piety. So there you go, practical theology. Um, back to that. Um, and Victoria, you've already talked about that a good deal, the fact that she was taking the time to write, you know, putting pen to paper multiple times throughout the day. I, part of me just totally reels at that and feels completely, um, like unsubstantial next to her <laughs> as I, I, as I, I work on this one that had that many kids and she can write four times a day. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> right. Exactly. I've got uh, an almost 10 month old and a two and a half year old, and I can hardly find time to like put my shoes on given on any given day. So I, I'm humbled and, you know, called to greater pride. Like- yes. <laughs> It does sound like they have servants just to, <laughs> to make you feel a little better. They definitely have babysitters. So, and like people around living around and helping with the kids. So, um, yeah. you know, just keep that in mind. That is a fair point. I appreciate you bringing that up. It does need to be said that they had, did have servants. And I was going to, that was one of the things I was going to say, actually, Victoria's. Um, so the Wesleys never had a lot of money, but their social status being, you know, the, the, the rector and his family, while it didn't bring in a lot of money. It did give them a home. It did give them, um, you know, they, they were, I guess, middle class. Would that have been a thing yet at this point? As middle class as it gets in the seven and sort of. Yeah. I, like I can't really. We don't have time for me to answer right, that question right. better okay, than that. Enough. I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, um, no. But I, I did. Um, I, I was hoping that you would mention their sort of social position because I, I do think. While her um, egalitarian education is is certainly um, outside of the norm, I do think it that this is a case where it was enabled by class position yeah. at least a little bit. Yeah, agreed. For the practical reason that you brought up, Nora, the fact that they have servants, and then also for um, educational reasons. I mean, you married one Oxford man, and I don't remember if her father went to Oxford, but he was obviously very well educated, and so um, that's class as much as anything 
in these days. So thank you for that. And I'll keep going on educating my family. Um, this is one of her more famous pieces. So a little bit of background. Um, John Wesley requested that she write her, she, she write this, that she record her experience um, raising her children and educating them so that he could pass this information on to his parishioners and posterity. He obviously thought it was a good model and, um, you know, he, he, they were called Methodist derogatorily when they were at Oxford doing this club thing. But part of it, the reason was they spent hours in prayer early in the morning and fasted religiously and hours in prayer every evening. And, um, you know, some people would say that it was on the verge of being that sort of like pharisaical sort of, um, adherence to a method, but that it wasn't, again, we don't have time for all that, but that's, uh, that that's very much based on watching his mother do this throughout his entire life at home. So um, I ran across this essay a few times. You can find it online, and uh, a couple things happened um, while I found it online. One, the adage, never read the comments, came to mind, and that's sure the truth. We'll talk a little bit about um, one of her more controversial practices in this essay, which was teaching children to fear the rod, and you can imagine the sort of modern commentary that ran on the internet about this. Um, so I was very glad then to turn to the scholarly edition that we have before us and read Wallace's notes on this. I'm sure there are other notes. Um, Wesley, John Wesley published this, um, or it was, it's been published in various things about him. Um, but Wallace brings to light the fact that Susanna Wesley heavily favors Locke in this essay, John Locke in this essay, which I thought was interesting. I'm not enough of a Locke scholar, even doing some basic research to be able to say a whole lot more about that other than what's here in the text. Um, but in a few places, she employs um, some of his ideas in his writing called Some Thoughts Concerning Education. So for those who do know about Locke, please feel free to write in and see, tell us what sounds familiar and um, you know, elucidate this a little bit for us because I thought it could be really interesting. I just didn't know enough about it. Um, one Paging of the, things the that... Christian humanists, uh, if, <laughs> right? <laughs> if, if Michael or Nathan, uh, who I know are, are well-read in philosophy would like to, uh, shoot us an email and, uh, and help us out with connections between Susanna's work and Locke, uh, we would love to hear more about that. Yes, lay it down. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting, about their, uh, you know, her writing to him or not, sorry, let me say that again. One of the things that was interesting about her incorporating his ideas in her writing, um, especially in regard to corporal punishment, which he also talks about in his piece is that it serves to moderate both of these theorists in, in the minds of, in the mind of Wallace, at least that Susanna ends up looking a lot less, a lot less harsh, um, and, you know, like dictatorial and Locke looks a lot less liberal, um, because kind of in the middle on this point. Um, so we'll skip ahead a little bit, um, to talk about some of the practical, interesting things I picked up as a mom of two young kids. She talks in the essay about more or less how she's, uh, sleep trains, um, ways to rock your rock the child's crib and not be in the room while they fall asleep. They, she talks about um, what children should eat and that kids eat what adults eat, which I think is a great rule. Practical bed by Woo! eight. Yay, right? no children's <laughs> menus. I know I don't yeah. have a kid, so I'm not actually allowed to say that, but man, no chicken nuggets. that annoys me. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, people yeah. with children. I will shut up now. Oh, no, I agree. I agree. We have a little foodie on our hands because we don't let her... Um, do anything but color them. Learn the Lord's Prayer is another interesting part. So um, she had her children, as soon as they were able to to talk, she had them memorize the Lord's Prayer and say the Lord's Prayer. And then um, then pieces of scripture until, and she would have them start on a you know chapter and verse and go until, I forget exactly what the quote is, but basically until their little brains couldn't hold anymore. So I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, Oh, and the last that I marked was that uh, children must always say please, essentially, and not to give a whining child anything, which is wonderful, wonderful advice. So very practical, very useful. Um, you know, something you could imagine 
if not preached from a pulpit, at least helpful to a congregation full of people raising children. Um, some of the tenets, like I had mentioned, are a little more controversial. Use, the use of the rod being one. Um, she included this in a discussion of conquering the will, is how she says it, which takes up about a quarter of the letter. Um, it's the second longest section of advice. And she seems to think that this is of the utmost importance, not because it makes life easier on the parent or because the Bible says, quote, spare the rod, spoil the child, or because that's how she was raised and it worked for her. Um, I'm being somewhat facetious as these are things that I read online in the comments, like I mentioned earlier. Um, but instead, she tells John, and I'm going to quote her directly here. This is evident if we consider that religion is nothing else than the doing the will of God and not our own, that the one grand impediment to our temporal and eternal happiness being the self-will, no indulgences of it can be trivial, no denial unprofitable. Heaven or hell depends on this alone, so that the parent who studies to subdue it in his child works together with God in the renewing and saving a soul. The parent who indulges it does the devil's work, makes religion impracticable, salvation unattainable. And does all in him, sorry, and does all that in him lies to damn his child, soul, and body forever. Um, so she brings up spanking both her, both she and Locke are pretty clear that um, whippings or beatings, however they refer to, are only to be done um, in certain circumstances and only to the point where the child realizes that like, hey, I'm not going to get my way in this and I'm being kind of a jerk about it. Most of the time her rules are few and she sticks to the few rules pretty steadily, but um Never is this beating supposed to, you know, just be because I said so, you need to listen to me. Um, and I, I thought her addition was particularly interesting in how it um, speaks to the faith aspect, which is not really something I thought of, that subduing our own will is something that I'm sure we all struggle with, right? Like throughout our lives, this is something that you're, we're constantly working through is how to, to do God's will and not just our own. Um, so I thought that was worth pointing out. I didn't know if anybody had anything they wanted to say about that. I uh, know. Sorry. Okay, but I know we talked a little bit about this. I think Lisa um, Cordell talked a little bit about, you know, corporal punishment on an episode that we did a little while back. And I don't want to, um, to use a really poor phrase, beat the horse, but beat the dead horse. But, um, it's worth bringing out because it is something that's referred to quite a lot, especially in modern, um, conservative, sometimes evangelical circles is, you know, she did it, so we should too. And um, I just wanted to point out that, yeah, kind of is how um, her conversation with Locke goes in that regards. I think my only thought about it is that, like, it's something that I think about if I ever had kids, I, I just worry so much that I wouldn't discipline them enough. You know, because I feel like I'm like way in the opposite direction. So it is interesting to like think about there being a time when everybody did that and it was normal. Right. I don't know. So I was um, also thinking about the previous episode that you mentioned, Sheila, um, where we we talked a little bit about some Christian literature that has been thought to um, use corporal punishment to the level of abuse and um, right. and and there is I think a, a lot of linguistic overlap um, this sort of um, breaking the will and 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 the use of of the word the verb train and and things like that. Um, there is a lot of overlap between that literature and what Susanna is suggesting, but something that I found in her that I have not found in, in that more contemporary literature is that in addition to the comparison between um, the, the sinful will of the child and, and the relationship between that person and, and the will of God, um, she also invokes grace and says, um, because of the existence of grace and forgiveness, you should not punish a child multiple times for one offense. Um, you, you punish them once and you talk to them about it and, and then you don't revisit that unless the offense is recommitted, um, which I, I think is, is important to mention. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. And, and I, I think it, it goes beyond being important to mention and it, and it you know, it adds to this, concept of, um, self-worth that she doesn't really talk about, but this idea of, um, you know, personhood, she, she definitely, while she doesn't say it outright, she treats every one of her children like they're a person. I mean, her, her goal is to raise them as, 
as people of God because that's who they are. I was certainly raised with this idea of, of like, uh, my parents being stewards more than parents, if that makes sense. Like they raised me as a child of God that they get to help with, but ultimately like I am a child of God and they, um, that I think is very Wesleyan in what I've been reading of hers. And so I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Thank you. My dad always used to joke when we were kids that he was just renting us that like we, <laughs> yeah. that, that God, God owns us. Right. And, and we are just, we just belong to our parents for a certain number of years, um, on this earth. So he would say things like, you know, uh, she, she's just a rental, but I think I'll keep her for a while longer. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> I can imagine he was pretty happy to have you around for a while. <laughs> Most days anyway, or some days, I don't know. Hi dad. <laughs> I think to add to the, um, you know, I, I think it is important to consider if she did, you know, discipline her children, like, um, physically discipline them. Um, there also is that point about how she would set a different day aside for each kid to talk about what was important to them, which I think is a really interesting, or like an evening, like she'd spend evenings with them. Um, yeah. and I love that. Just, it does seem like she's not trying to turn them into robots, I guess that she does want to, I guess I'm just repeating what you said, but yeah, um, no. And I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit more before I transition over to you and the, um, her, her schoolroom setting is, is remarkable in the amount of time that they spend. I mean, all the kids learn for six hours a day, starting when you turn five years old. And, um, and, and I just have to say like at your fifth birthday, you get to sit down in the room, just you and mom all day long, learning your ABCs. That's what you do. You learn your alphabet when you turn five and the rest of the kids better work quietly because this is the most important thing in the house on that day. Um, and that combined with the evenings that she spent with each child and every kid knew their, their day. And I, one of the letters she tells someone, um, I don't remember who's, which kid is which day, but you know, Hetty on Tuesdays and, um, Samuel on Wednesdays and Jackie on Thursday and Charles on Saturday, you know, she knew who it was and it, it was methodical. Um, because I can imagine with 10 kids running around or nine, I think Samuel was a little bit older than the other brothers and sisters, but whatever it is with that many kids, you know, you do have to have some kind of method there. There's a lot of grace in that family and there's a lot of room for, um, raising people up to be thoughtful, intellectual reasoning, compassionate people, um, which I think is, you know, part of, it definitely shows in the way that Methodism kind of took off in that age. Um, we don't have time to talk about what makes Methodism, what made it special, special air quotes back then, but it was a movement about compassion, um, in addition to other things. And I think that that definitely shows with her. Um, I think that's like, you guys picked up on all the good stuff that I want to talk about. The only other thing I wanted to mention was um, her ensuring that all of her children, women, girls included, were taught with rigor and high expectations. And um, Victoria already talked about that that final rule, which is that girls must um, learn before that before before they can work. And I wanted to read in my final bit here um, this last rule. Wallace tells us this in in a note at the very end that the last rule interestingly corresponds to a line of thought from her sister Elizabeth Dunton's funeral sermon. And he quotes, if good women would apply themselves to reading and study as the men do, or had equal advantage for knowledge in their education, no doubt we should have more of their excellent composures. Many of them have an happy genius and a smooth expression and might write as well as work like needlework. And the pen might have as good success as the needle. Especially, they may make observations or draw up rules for the good order of their own families, and when they see fit, communicate them for the good of others. So, love that. Um, I'm going to end it there and turn it over to you, Nora. Um, as we mentioned in our bio, uh, Susanna was kind of uh, against the times or iconoclastic in a few respects. One of those was ministering to others openly and sometimes at odds with her husband or other clergymen. Would you talk a little bit about the evening prayers controversy and why her ministry um, or ministering was controversial? I will. Yeah. Um, so 
it doesn't look like it went on for too long. Um, or the dispute, there's a dispute about her teaching other people. Um, and it came about because, oh, sorry, in the winter of 1711 to 1712. Um, so anyway, so what happened was her husband went off to London. And um, so she was home alone again. And she started as part of her rituals um, on Sunday evening. So this would have been like after the church services. Um, she would have, it started with her children where she would have kind of like another service with her children where they would do like a devotional and some kind of, um, you know, like, you know, praying and reading. Um, and then it kind of, from what I understand, it kind of had like a domino effect and it's, it's then it like the servants got involved. And then at some point, 200 people were in her house, um, to participate in these kind of like extra services, that she put on and, um, and she would teach during them. And so apparently the clergyman that was there doing the morning services, whose name was Inman, got really annoyed. And so he wrote to her husband and said, you've got to stop this. You know, she's like stepping out of her bounds as a good wife. And so she wrote him, um, so she wrote her husband back a couple of letters about defending her practices. And so, um, that's basically what happened. Um, one of the things that, uh, Sheila had us, uh, suggested that we read was a blog, um, by a woman named Kristen Rosser. And I really liked her description of kind of what was going on there. So I'm going to read her paragraph about it. She says, the people of the Wesley Parish strongly preferred Susanna's sermons to those of either Samuel Wesley or the chosen replacements. So you kind of get a sense that she was really good at what she was doing. Um, uh, so, and then Rosser continues, uh, they could have simply attended morning services and considered their spiritual duty done. But what Mrs. Wesley was offering was clearly something that spoke to their hearts and met with met their spiritual needs. They came because they wanted to come. As this series on women in church history has already frequently illustrated, sorry, uh, the Holy Spirit often has often found cracks in the systemic repression of women's ministry through which to speak through God's daughters despite the best efforts of their brothers in the faith. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting way to look at it. Um, and you do get a sense in... Uh, and Susanna's response to her husband, uh, I think she, you know, she defends what she's doing as something that seems very genuine. And I love that word um, because I imagine that um, that for a lot of these people, maybe it was probably pretty cool to have something outside of a reason to worship God outside of the, the ritualistic um, times that they were supposed to, because it was such a part of their lives, the, the routine of it. So, um, and there does seem to be kind of like this, she had this kind of spiritual confidence in what she was doing. Um, she basically defends, um, she defends what she's doing. She, she tells her husband that she views each of her, you know, she basically says, you know, you're away all the time. So it's my responsibility to <laughs> educate our children. And she says she sees each soul as a talent committed to her under a trust by the great Lord of all families under heaven and earth. Um, so basically she just says to her husband, like, I don't really answer to you. I answer to God. And I believe that God is the person who's, who's giving me this opportunity. So I, that kind of flabbergasted me, just her confidence, um, to defend it that way. Um, I should say that like, she opens a letter with this kind of thesis statement. <laughs> uh, she says, the main of your objections against our Sunday meetings are, first, that it looks peculiar, second, my sex, and thirdly, your being at present in a public station and character. To all, I will answer briefly. So she does actually, you know, cover those three sections, but um, but the underlying thing that's that permeates through the whole letter is just like, I'm doing this because I feel spiritually led to do it, which is just like... Um, I think knowing that, um, that she is a woman and that, you know, there's parts of the Bible that say women aren't supposed to teach. Um, I think that makes those statements really interesting. 
And I also get a sense that she understands that this Inman guy is just jealous, <laughs> like tattling on her. And, yeah. you know, she's just like, she's so above him. Um, but I'm sure that like the presence of 200 faces in her living room or whatever probably was also a big confidence builder, you know? And so she definitely seems to be kind of enjoying it. And, um, and I love that she says, you know, she says with God, all things are possible, which like is like for a woman to say that, you know? Um, I mean, I think of that in so many contexts with, church problems <laughs> you know it's like you can't you know i feel like the church is like oh we can't do this um this is stepping out of the boundaries um some of the problems that we have today in our churches and then but her answer being well actually you know with god all things are possible so <laughs> let's not let's let's keep god bigger than us i feel like is what keeps her going in this practice and gives her confidence um and she also from the C.S. Lewis Institute, there was an article by this dude named, uh, or this scholar, sorry, named Arthur Dickin Thomas Jr., which is so many names. And um, But anyway, great name. He says that, uh, he quotes her, uh, he says that her, um, sorry, Susanna claimed that her husband had no power over the conscience of his wife. And she says, I value neither reputation, friends, or anything in comparison with the singular satisfaction of preserving a conscience conscience void of offense towards God and man, um, which really, A, reminded me of the po- Apostle Paul. Like, it just sounded very, very Paul to me. Um, but also just, again, this confidence that she has, that she answers to God and not men. And if you think about that in context of her educating her daughters— You know, she's also teaching her daughters that before you are, you know, accountable to any human being, you are accountable to God. You have a relationship with God. Before you have to, you know, do the laundry, you have to know how to understand your position or what is your identity in God, which I thought was really interesting. And I can see why people were attracted to her with that in mind. Um, And then... Just, like, the last point about it was just, like, uh, she talks about having a clean conscience, and um, this kind of goes back to what you both have already said, but just, like, this idea that um, you have to kind of get your thoughts in line before you can act, but the action is really important. And then, so, thinking of her as a leader, that was one of my assignments. <laughs> I'm just, I think that's a really interesting thing, that she just she's trying to keep her mind clean all the time. So that way her actions will be clean. Like she really sees a link between those two things. Thank you. I know I'm probably putting way too modern a twist on her when I think about that this whole, especially the controversy with the evening prayers and the response to Wesley. Like how can you argue with her when she says, you know, if I'm impressed <laughs> with these talents, how can you come back and be like, well, nah, uh <laughs> Right, <laughs> totally. It's like, and I've like, got the Holy Spirit. Spirit. <laughs> That's right. Like, Sit okay. down, hubby, you know, and I just can't help but wonder, like, this, you know, 19-year-old woman who fell in love with this guy and got married, if that's how it did, you know, I don't know. But just kind of realized at one point, like, oh, well, maybe this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be, and realized, you know, as we all should, where you're in your, your, your highest calling should be. But, uh, yeah, that's probably too modern on Susanna Wesley, but thank you for sharing all of that information about her and, um, talking so much about it. I really appreciate you reading that. Um, I think we're going to move ahead then for the sake of time here and hit our lightning round kind of last questions. I'll throw a few out there and feel free to answer, um, one of them, or if there was something else that you wanted to mention, do that too. So, Final thoughts here. What do you think? The the Methodist nerd, me, I had a good time reading this, but uh, did you and why? Does does Susanna Wesley act as a spiritual midwife? Um, or might she if we were to keep reading more of what she's saying? And um, the last question was, what's the relevancy of talking about history's women of faith in this way? Or Christian women, I guess I should say. Is it worth talking about more mothers of Christian faith like this? Can I start? I want to be the voice of a little bit of dissent, even though I, <laughs> um, yeah. just so that we'll end on a more positive. But um, but one thing that occurred to me with that question of, you know, 
is of, as thinking of her as a woman and, um, you know, should we be paying attention? Um, I do. The answer, I think, is yes. But also, I've, the more I read of her, the more I felt like she did not see herself as limited as a woman. Um, she saw herself as a as a she saw herself as a vessel of God who happened to be in the shape of a woman. But it seems to me like she had a sense of identity that was deeper than that, which I think makes her a pretty cool woman. But it kind of reminded me of this. I'll try to keep it brief. Um, I went to a, I guess it was like a, what was that? A symposium at Miami University. I used to, I used to study there. And um, Gino Diaz came, and it was for Latino writers. And somebody asked him, like, what does it mean to be a Latino writer? And he got really offended. And he's just like, I don't want you to think of me like that. Just think of me as a writer, which is kind of funny because the whole thing was about Latino writers, but, and Latino writers. So he knew that question was coming and probably thought about it a lot. But I thought about this in her case. Like, I feel like from reading her stuff, if you asked her, what does it mean to be a woman, um, a woman believer? I think she would just be like, I, I'm a, I would rather you just think of me as a, as a believer. I don't know. Do you guys get that sense from her or? I think that's a great point. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, I mean, I, I think that she is certainly someone who acknowledges the social expectations of her gender in her writing. Um, but I, I think she does it the same way that she embeds practicality into the other aspects of what she's doing. I, I agree with your assessment that she would want to be treated as a, a believer first and foremost. Yeah, that's my thought on it. But um, But I think it's also like, I think also if I had children and like understanding I think I would probably understand her a little bit differently and also just like the way that she just had so much confidence that she was sent by God to do what she was doing and I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that she was a mother so I mean I wouldn't say that she was like thought she was a man you know but so I don't think that's totally absent but like as far as um it's just kind of like a pickle that we have as Christian feminists, you know, like I know for me, you know, I'm always hungry to find women thinkers, but then at the same time, I feel this kind of conflict of, I don't want to go seek out somebody. I don't want her to be special because she's a woman, you know, (laughs) like I want her to be special because she's awesome. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I think this is a really hard line to walk. Um, and I, I think it, it dovetails really nicely with, with Sheila's spiritual midwife question. Um, just to review, this is a term we use a lot, um, and we're getting it from Sarah Bessie's book, Jesus Feminist, um, and a spiritual midwife is basically a, a woman who's a, a model of the faith who um, kind of births and delivers, to, to use the, the metaphor of, of the word, um, our own um, our own expression of, of theology or Christianity, someone who is ushering us into the world kind of metaphorically, that we, that we take things from that way. Um, because you you kind of can't separate that notion from gender. And I, I do think that representation, um, we, we've talked, you know, in, in various fora, um, various episodes of this show that women seeing women of the faith is important. But I, I do think that if, if we look for that too much, if it becomes, you know, about picking people just because they're women, that that's not, that's not great either. Yeah, those are great points. I appreciate both of those perspectives and um, want to read more myself from this text, more of the theology stuff that she got into. Nora, to to your point, to see more about what makes her function as a believer, um, what things she held to, who she was in conversation with intellectually, um, you know, for my own purposes. And I appreciate all of that. Great. Well, this brings us to our last section, the passing on, and um, we're going to start with Victoria. And once you've given your recommendations, just throw it to Nora and we'll come back around. 
Alrighty. So my recommendation this week is just the practice of journaling. Um, I, I've been, as we've already mentioned, really inspired by how regular Susanna journaled and, and how dedicated she was to just doing this practice over and over and getting her thoughts on paper. Um, so I am going to say uh, virtually in front of you all that I'm going to try really hard to journal more regularly myself. So to that end, my recommendation is a, um, a blog post that is a list of uh, journal prompts to, to get you start, uh, to start thinking um, and, and writing more regularly. So that's my recommendation. I will um, hopefully try to remain accountable to you all and to offer you updates on whether I'm actually doing this or not. Thank you. That sounds like a really good challenge for me too. <laughs> Nora. That's really cool. Um, my recommendation is kind of, <laughs> I don't know if anybody will actually take me up on this um, one, but it may, the reading this reminded me a lot of Mary Estelle. I don't know if you've heard of her, um, but I learned about her in a rhetoric class. I took a, a rhetoric theory class and she's known as like the first woman feminist. Um, and she was kind of interesting to think about in context of uh, Wesley. She she precedes Wesley a little bit, I think. And she wrote a couple of long essays um, called A Serious Proposal to the Ladies, Part 1 and 2. So that's what I'm recommending. Um, you could, They're all over the Internet, I think, I believe. They're not hard to get a hold of. Um, and they're kind of just, I don't actually, like, agree with everything she says in them. But what they are interesting examples of is just looking at, um, if you are interested in just thinking about what education meant at that time or, you know, early to what it meant to be a woman and educated, um, apparently according to our rhetoric class, Estelle was one of the first women to suggest that, um, that girls should be educated, um, and to find value in a woman's education. So I guess, um, I thought of them just wondering what, if there was any relationship between, um, Susanna Wesley and, and her, I'm sure, I don't know. I actually don't know how many people read these proposals. Um, but Estelle was, um, was it called Anglican then? <laughs> she was an Anglican. Um, so part of the high church. And, uh, so maybe it's possible, but yeah, that's what I'm recommending. Um, but she just, a lot of it is like, um, a woman should be educated so that she can be better at doing her women things. So there's kind of a contrast, um, but it's an interesting thing to think about. So Mary Estelle is my recommendation. Thank you. That sounds really interesting. I just uh, Googled it and pulled it up so I can read it later. Thanks. Um, and I'm just going to, I'm going to post a link to the quarterly quarterly review that I mentioned earlier. There are a couple really interesting articles if you're at all, um, if you want to read anything else about uh, the history of, of women and their place in Wesleyan and Methodist movements, um, there's a little bit about the Wesleyan holiness movement if you're leaning more on that side and um, want to know more. So that article or that issue, again, I'm sorry, was called Towards a Wesleyan Feminism. It's interesting stuff. So thank you for joining us and listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast today. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes from this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Zach Schmidt is our intern. For Nora Bonner and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, I'm Sheila Woodruff. Tune in in two weeks for our discussion of incarnational theology. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.